Well, it's good to be back again with each one this evening. It, um, in a way, it feels like it's like this last half of this week went fast. And in another way, it feels like we've been here for a while. So I'm looking forward to going back home. But I, we've thoroughly enjoyed our time here. And, and um, before I forget, I thank each one for their hospitality, for your sharing. Um, thank you, Ed, for allowing us to stay in your apartment there. That was, that was nice to have our own little place we could come and go. And somebody put some food in there. I don't know who that was. And somebody's been feeding us, keeping us fed. We appreciate that. The gifts that y'all gave, we we thank you for that. We we um, that wasn't why we came, but we thank you for that. So I've enjoyed getting to visit with some of y'all. Not very much, not as much as I would have liked to. I guess we got to come sometime when we when we don't have church every evening and as much of a rush schedule. Um, but I. I love y'all here, and and I will commit myself to continue praying for y'all. Message I felt inspired to share tonight, kind of as a as a clincher, as a as a closing message. Title I've given it: With God, we can do brotherhood. With God, we can do brotherhood. The reason for adding that, inserting that with God, is because Jesus told His disciples, by this will all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And if you are doing brotherhood, you probably don't hate each other very much. You probably have at least a little bit of love for each other. And so when, when, the, when what the world sees... When they look at us, depends on how well we are doing brotherhood. Then I think we ought to we need to take a look at that. Webb's definition for brotherhood is a fellowship or alliance, an association for a particular purpose. The whole body of persons engaged in a business or profession. It also calls it a fellowship, a community of interest, activity, feeling, or experience. There is a there's a man that goes through some of those same uh, migrant camps that we do down at the border on the Mexico side, and he's down there all by himself. He doesn't have a church there. He's from a community in Tennessee, and one of the staff, I think it was the last time I was down there, maybe the time before, one of our staff asked me, "What do we tell these? What do we tell these migrants?" Because here's the question that they're asking. These are these are largely Evangelical, um, evangelical Christians, um, they have their distinct flavor, the Latino culture. Uh, some Catholic, but most are Latinos, and they, they see this man down there all by himself, and they ask him where he's from, and they ask him where his church is, and they ask him why his church isn't there with him. And, and so, they, so they, they've been asking, they asked one of our staff down there a couple of times, he's like, is that right to be down here by yourself, and your church isn't even blessing that, or they're not even supporting that. Like, what's wrong with that? And I'm kind of surprised they thought of that. I, you know, we don't think about that that much. But the word that they keep coming, the word that they keep using is a Spanish word that says brotherhood. Where's his brotherhood? 
You know, they're not supporting him. He's down there by himself. His wife isn't even there with him most of the time. He's down there by himself. And to them, it doesn't look quite right. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to slam what he's doing, okay? Um, how did Jesus say, or how did Paul say, nevertheless, the gospel is preached. And so, I'm convinced that God can use him. But to those, to those migrants there, they're like, this man needs a church to help him and to bless him in this. And sometimes we don't, we don't appreciate that need as much as we should. Let me show you what, what brotherhood looks like. This isn't actually brotherhood, this is more community. But in Bruno, Nebraska, 1981, there's a man named Herman Ostry. Him and his wife bought a farm a half mile outside of Bruno, Nebraska. And that little community is 60 or 70 miles west of Omaha. Property had a creek that came through it, and there was a barn that had been built in the 1920s. And this is, this is a big barn. This isn't a mini barn. This is one of these barns like y'all have the big gambrel roofs. And by the way, if you want to fact check this, you can, you can still see this. It's, there was, this was all on television back in the day, and so now there's these really grainy videos. But it's on, it's on YouTube. You can watch it. And the, the, barn was, the barn floor was always wet and muddy. When the creek flooded in 1988... The barn ended up with 29 inches of water covering the floor. And that was the last straw. They were just like, we've got to do something with this barn. So Mr. Oster contacted a moving company. And they came out and gave him a quote. And it was this astronomical number. More than it would have cost him to rebuild the barn. So he said, well, I'm not going to do that. One morning around the breakfast table, he's, he kind of jokingly made this comment. You know, we had enough people. We could carry that barn. And... That was just kind of a comment made in passing. He never thought of it after that. A few days later, Mr. Oster's son, Mike, showed his dad a piece of paper with some calculations on there. He had counted every board, counted every rafter, every beam, and he, 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 just, he was estimating. And he said that he believes this barn weighs approximately 16,640 pounds. And he said that the steel grid, they had some... They built some pretty nifty deals to, so you could pick up inside and outside. And he said this steel grid that was going to be needed to move the barn was going to add, was going to add another 3,150 pounds, bringing the total weight to just under 10 tons. And he also figured it would take around 350 people with each person lifting 56 pounds to move the barn. A lot of math there. Smart, smart young man. So, remember this is 1988, the town of Bruno was planning a centennial celebration. The town was going to be 100 years old. And so, Mr. Ostry talked to the mayor, whoever it was he talked to. And he was like, would you, would you consider including this in the town's celebration? And they were like, why not? Sounds like fun, sounds interesting. So they made a new foundation. And July 30th, 1988, they performed a quick test lift. And you can watch this. They, everybody's, everybody's standing there and they just, all they got to do is bend their knees a little bit. The way they had this grid, this grid set up, everybody had to bend their knees a little bit. And then this guy on his microphone, he says, he says, one, two, three. And everybody just straightens their legs. And the whole barn just comes up, just three or four inches. It's not much. And he went around asking everybody, do you feel comfortable? Are you lifting more than you should? And you have big people, a lot taller than I am. You have little short people. You have big people this way. You have little people this way. You have old people. You have young people. You've got everything in there. There was men. There was women. I mean, it was about as, about as diverse as it gets. 
And everybody's like, no, they feel comfortable. And so they had to, they had to carry the barn. At, I don't know if I wrote that down. About 115 feet south and up six feet. So 115 feet up six feet. It wasn't a steep slope, but it was a bit of a slope. And they go up there. They carry the barn straight up and they spun it. I think it's about 45 degrees. And they went forward a little bit and they set that thing on its new foundation. 350 people. And it's amazing to watch everybody stepping in unison. The people inside the wall that were walking side to side, like you have people inside and outside walking side by side, no problem, right? But then the front wall and the back wall, you have people that are inside and outside. The people inside, their feet are just a few inches from the people outside. And they're walking. And, and they're watching where they're walking. And they're listening for their instructions. But they're all helping each other. And they carried this big barn. It, it, was, it, was, a big, it was a big barn that they carried up this hill. I think the reason that sometimes we think things can't be done is because we realize we can't do them ourselves. And we, we just feel inadequate to do it. And we underestimate how much we can do with the help of others. And for sure, this wasn't even a group of people that, you, that were united around an eternal cause. There was no souls at stake here, really. It didn't really matter if they carried it 100 feet and it fell apart. Like, that didn't really matter. Except for the people inside, I guess. But working together, we can not only move barns, but I think we can change the world. The, the most obvious, the easiest, the fastest way to change the world is to get all the politics right. To where everything happens all at one time. Massive change. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen. And so, in our own little communities, wherever we're at, that's how to change the world slowly, but that's a better, more sure change. And so it doesn't matter if, if you're in a community where there's five families, where there's 20 families, where there's 100 families. The thing that is important is that the people that are around there, by looking at them, they see that, they're, that, that were Jesus' disciples, that were His followers. Book of Exodus, Moses' father-in-law came up. This is after they'd come out of the, the land of Egypt. Moses' father-in-law, his name was Jethro, came up. And he brought Moses' wife and his, his sons with him. And he, he sat there one day and he's watching Moses and his going-ons there. And, and in verse 13... Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning to even? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said, The thing thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Anybody here ever felt like you were exhausted? You had, you had your job. Um, you have maybe a family. Maybe you have a, a young person or somebody that's just somebody in the community or, or a child or someone that you're trying to help and, and they're troubled and, and, you just really just, you feel like you're just exhausted. Like, what more is there to do? Maybe you have church things you need to be doing. And you're just like, I don't have energy for another day. Moses' father-in-law said, you're just going to wear yourself away. You're going to wear yourself away physically, mentally, whatever. 
And then what good are you going to be to the people once you can't do anything anymore? He said, I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. And he told him to provide people that, that would take all these cases. People, things that were hard, the, that were harder to judge, they could bring to him. But he said, place them over to be rulers over thousands, over hundreds, over fifty, and rulers over tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. It shall be that every great matter they shall bring into thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall be it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. See how Moses' father-in-law, he looked at that and he's like, that's not sustainable. you doing everything. You need to get these other men to help you. You have capable people around you. Now, it was probably intimidating for Moses to do that because it is a little bit intimidating for, for, for leaders to, to assign out these things to do because somebody else is going to do them different. It's not going to be done the same way I do. And sometimes that's okay. Because without that, we're going to wear away. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 25. I'm not going to read all of that, but it says, For as a body is one member, is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, Because I'm not the eye, I'm not the body, is it therefore not of the body? Verse 18, but now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. If you're, if you're a young person here, God put you there because it pleased Him. He delighted in doing that. If you're a dad or a mom here, He put you there because it pleased Him. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you're there because it pleased Him. If you're a trustee, you're there because it pleased Him. If you're a minister or deacon, that's because it pleased God to do that, to put you there. Verse 22, Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. The trustee that's back there changing the leaking pot or fixing the roof or working on the foundation or whatever, he's just as necessary as the person that comes and turns on the heat in the winter or the AC in the, in the summer. He's just as necessary as the person that is bringing the message, really. Because he's doing his part. He's doing what it pleased God to assign to him. To do to him. And we, we sometimes don't think about that. But these members which we think to be less honorable, he says, upon them we bestow more abundant honor. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. And in verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the abundant care one for another. And that word schism means a tear or a gap. That there should be no tear, there should be no gap in the body, but that it's, it's rounded out. And when one person's missing, there is a gap. When one person doesn't do what he's supposed to do, there's a gap. How many of y'all know what Damascus steel is? You know what, a Dam what Damascus steel is? You've probably seen it. You've probably got knives like that. I've got a few. And those are some incredibly, if they're made out of good steel anyhow, there's some incredibly, um, incredibly tough blades. But what they do is they take this, they take this layer of steel and they beat this down and they beat this down 
And it's, it's so thin, it wouldn't make a knife blade. You could, I mean, if you hit a bone with it, you'd fold the edge over. They take another layer and they fold this. And sometimes if it's a wide enough deal, they'll fold it over again. But they keep beating these layers and layers and layers together. Now, if you don't add enough layers, there's not enough strength. Or if there's even one layer in there that is inferior quality steel, when you sharpen down to that, you're going to have an edge that doesn't last. Every individual layer of that knife is needed. And if there's not, if it's not there, there's a problem. This is how I picture the body of Christ here, how he's saying it. He put everybody in their place so that there's no gap. So there's not, there's no problem there. There's no, there's nothing that, there's no need comes up that somebody in the group can't help. And I think when, when we are looking at each other like that, I think that we can meet each other's needs. Now, when I lose my confidence in my brothers, in my sisters, then I'm not going to need them. I might, but I just don't realize it. I'm for sure not going to want their help. But when I see that you know, these brothers, these sisters are put there by God for when I have a problem, when I need help, when I need encouragement, then there is no gap there. Acts chapter 6, the church had a problem. They had some widows that were being neglected. And the apostles were just frazzled trying to keep up with all their preaching and take care of everybody, make sure everybody's fed and all their needs are met. And you have these people selling their places and bring the money to the apostles. And well, what are they supposed to do with this? And how do they divvy this out? And they said, we can't keep doing this. They said, look out from among you seven men. And they gave, them, they gave them ideals. They gave them things to look for. But they said, you bring out these men and they're going to take care of these needs and so that we can go back to what we were supposed to be doing, which was preaching the gospel. Did they do it the same way the apostles did? Probably not. Imagine Philip and Stephen and Nicanor and all those men. They probably had a little different way of relating to people. They probably... They probably approved a few things that, that the apostles wouldn't have, and maybe they were a little harder on some things that the apostles wouldn't have been. I don't know. But it worked. That's the point. It worked. They were put there to fill a job. And so, I believe that if you're here tonight and you have no assigned responsibility from the church, maybe you're not a Sunday school teacher, maybe you're not... Um, Maybe you're not a trustee. Maybe you're not a preacher. Maybe you're not whatever. Maybe you don't have any job. I think you still have a job. It doesn't matter if you're big, if you're little. It doesn't matter if you're old, if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're a, if you're a man or if you're a lady. You have a job. There was a lady in the book of Acts that died. Her name was Dorcas Tabitha. And she died... And I don't know if anybody knew she'd been doing anything. I don't know if anybody noticed it until she died. And then all the people that she had been helping came and brought their things and they're there just mourning. And they just there was a tremendous loss over this lady that had died. And I don't know if anybody had recognized it while she was living. I mean, I'm sure the people that she was blessing, they were grateful. But the world and the church didn't see the great things she was doing. And so maybe what you do all your life for the church, nobody notices. 
Maybe you're not ever a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're never a school teacher. But maybe you spend your whole life observing people and, and maybe quietly passing a note to them when you see they're discouraged. Or maybe you, when you see someone has, someone's discouraged or you hear something, you spend hours praying for that person. That's no small task. That, that verse in Revelation, I, was, I had written that one down, Larry read it, talks about the prayers of the saints, the odors that, that are just such a good smell, the prayers of the saints. That's an offering, that's a sacrifice that you can do if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. You can't and shouldn't do everything, but you can't and shouldn't allow everyone else to do everything either. Someone has to answer that call or it's going to fall on a few willing people who would rather work themselves to death than see things being undone. Somebody has to do it. I found some interesting facts that um, I hope someone can verify these. I found them a few different places and I have a, I'm not sure how he uses my mom's uncles, whatever that makes me, that's told me some of these numbers as well. A single draft horse can pull up to 8,000 pounds. That's pretty much a standard, you know, 8,000 pounds is kind of an accepted figure. Now, some horses more, some less, but if you hitch two of them together, how much do you think they can pull? Anyone want to guess? How much? 20,000? How does 8,000 plus 8,000 come up with 20,000? I said 16,000. That number is actually 24,000 pounds. You are almost right. So two plus two doesn't know, or one plus one doesn't always equal two. Sometimes it equals three. Now, if you take those two horses and you regularly work them together, and most people say six six months to a year, you work them together regularly. How much do you think them two can pull? Thirty-two thousand pounds, four times of what one horse can by himself. And the point I'm trying to make is that when you work with your brotherhood with with each other long enough. You're, you're doing more than what one person can. You're doing more than twice what one person can do. Because it's the working together and it's, and it's learning when one person stops to stop. Now, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do, but you stop and you observe. When one person's pulling, maybe you don't have that same kind of inspiration or maybe that's not really your, your burden. But when one person has that burden and they're... And they're they're dedicated to seeing that, um, to seeing that mission or whatever it is filled. If God gives you the ability to do that, pull alongside that person and and help that person's zeal um, do what do what it do what it's meant to do. Isaiah chapter six verse eight. He heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Then said I, here am I, send me. How willing is that? When there's a need in the church, or whether it's outside the church, maybe it's going somewhere. Whom shall, I, whom shall go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Are you going to say, here am I, send me? Or are you going to say, well, that brother would do a good job. Or that sister, that's, that's down her line. I, I'd just as soon not do it. There's times for that. If you've already got plenty to do and there's other people that don't have much to do, there's time for that. But who will, who will go? Another thing I believe that 
in brotherhood, we need to recognize is that we need a mission. I, I really appreciate that little, Floyd gave me one of these little papers, this thing that y'all read together, Church Covenant. There's a lot of mission in that, isn't it? That's loaded. That's huge. Dale Heisey said once, a church without a mission is already a mission field. A church without a mission is already a mission field. And his point was that if you really don't have a reason for being there in your community or whatever it is, if you really don't have a reason to be there, you don't have a mission, you don't have something you're striving for, then somebody needs to come and, and, and be a missionary to you. He needs to help you get that. He needs to inspire that in you. No organization, no business, no corporation, and no club does well without a common goal tying them together. Corporations, if you, if you, if you would tell you, if you would pool all the money that these big corporations spend to try to incentivize their people and get them on, on board and, and inspire them and all the self-motivation and all that that's taught, these motivational speakers, if you'd pool all those resources, it would be millions of dollars a year that people are spending to do that. And while I'm not saying we need to spend a lot of money to do that, I think maybe sometimes we need to do more of that for each other. And that's one of the reasons that we have meetings and that we try to, we have these times of of just focusing on on being encouraged and being filled, being inspired. At home in our, in our, um, our statement of faith, we have a vision and then we have a mission. Our vision is, Promote to live the gospel in such a way that a desire is born in others to experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in their lives also. And our mission is to bring seeking souls and ourselves into an accountable fellowship that applies Bible principles to daily life in a practical way. That may be totally different than yours, I don't know. Um, but that's we, we've written that down, and I'm not sure that we've always done the best job in keeping that in front of us and following that. There's been times when I know we haven't. But if we don't have, if you don't have a clear mission in life, I'm not necessarily talking about as a church, but as an, individ- as an individual for sure, I think you ought to take time and you ought to pray about that. You've got some gorgeous country here. Get up on them mountains by yourself. Spend a day up there praying and write that down. Write down what you would like to do with your life. What you I mean it doesn't have to be something big. It doesn't have to be something fancy and it doesn't even have to be something that you ever tell anybody. But what is what what am I wanting out of life? What is my purpose? What is where would I like to end up? And if you set goals and then you make choices to get to that goal. Do that. Write it down and then pursue it. But be aware that sometimes when you do that, God's going to take you where you don't want to go. Probably the first two years after I was ordained, I was much less effective than I could have been because I I kept fighting God about it. That was the last thing I wanted to be was a preacher. I, I, I I would have been okay with being about anything else but that. But you see, when you when you tell God you'll do whatever He wants you to do, and when you have a goal to whatever God asks you to do, to do, don't be surprised if He makes you a bit uncomfortable at times. I can almost guarantee you that if you live very long after you have told God that, you're going to have to do things you don't really want to do. But that's okay. 
But don't do, don't repeat the mistake that I made. Embrace it and tell God, I don't know how to do this, but I'll do it with my whole heart. And you'll find much more blessing and much more joy in that. Paul was talking about preaching the gospel. And I don't even know what, ref- what the passage is or what the, what the reference is. But he's talking about preaching the gospel. He said, if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is given to me, something about what, what does it profit him? But he said, if I with joy share the gospel, then there's also a blessing for me. And his, his point was that if I'm, if, if I'm doing something because I have to and not because, I'm, not because I do it with, with joy, then, yeah, it's being done, but I'm not getting the blessing out of it. I'm not getting joy. I'm not finding fulfillment in it. But even though I don't want to do it, if I do it with joy and with my heart, then, then you will receive a blessing. You know, another thing I think we could use a lot more of is more accountability to each other at times. When you see a person that's struggling, a brother, a neighbor, whoever it is, when's the last time you've asked him, hey, I seem a little troubled. Something you want to talk about? When's the last time a sister was quiet and you're not sure if they're ignoring you, but they're not very talkative, they're not... and some of y'all are more or less talkative anyhow, so if some people aren't talking, that doesn't mean much. But somebody that, that you can tell something's not right, and you tell, that, you tell that sister, hey, seems like something's not right. I'm praying for you. If you don't want to talk about it, let me know. You ever ask anybody that seems like choices are making wrong choices? Instead of instead of maybe pinpointing those choices, you start asking questions. How's your connection with God? How, how's that relationship? Do you know God? Do you think God hears your prayers? Maybe y'all do this all the time. I don't know. Now, you, now you're seeing into my heart. You're seeing, you're seeing the things that God's, God's working on me for. How are you doing spiritually? Is there still life there? It's easy to pick on those fruits but sometimes the or always that's just a result of the heart and, and what's going on in there. There's a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, like I just described. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. I know that's a lot of names, but it's basically just saying don't bank on somebody else to do it. Anybody can do it. Well, if you're the one that has noticed that, if you're the one that the Spirit has laid that on your heart to talk to that person about or to drop that encouraging word or note or whatever, then you better do it. Because if you don't, nobody will. Or nobody might. Maybe somebody will, but there's a chance nobody will. Don't ever say, well, that's the preacher's job. Isaiah 41, verse 6, they helped everyone his neighbor. Not the rulers doing all this. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, be of good courage. That's what happens when God is in brotherhood. Everyone can help each other be of good courage.
I have people at home, or we have people at home that are like Aaron and her. When they can see you're discouraged, they lift up your arms. I'm sure you have those too. I don't know if there's a time goes by when I'm supposed to preach that my mom doesn't text me and say, hey, I'm praying for you. I think she did that about every time this week. She doesn't have to, but she does. I'm sure you have those people here too that have that unique ability to be encouragers. Keep doing that. Third point I have is that we need the power of the unity of God's Spirit. In the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. They weren't building it, they were rebuilding it. And I don't know how y'all are, but I absolutely despise remodeling. I don't mind modeling something. I don't mind building something, but I do not enjoy remodeling. We bought an old house and we remodeled way too much. These Israelites were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. So first you have to take all the junk and all that stuff and take all the mortar off the stones and all the beams and you've got to clean away the garbage and get ready to rebuild. And they were using used material to rebuild this wall. And not only that, but half of them were holding their artillery. And the other half were working. And in 52 days, they rebuilt that wall. I don't think we could do that because today we would go in with bulldozers and we would doze all that stuff away. And then we'd sit there for a while till Lowe's or Home Depot delivered some more blocks. And, and then it'd be a couple of weeks till we'd get the motivation to get out there and get all this laid. And, and these people got into it and they stayed after. Only half of them were working. But they were unified around one goal. Nehemiah 6, verse 15, verses 15 and 16, it says, So the wall was finished in the 20th and 5th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And it came to pass that when our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that the work was wrought of our God. There's a key in that. It doesn't say that they perceived that we were working together real well. It says the work was wrought of our God. There is a difference between having a spirit of unity and the unity of the Spirit, I believe. Because even satanic worshipers and all the, all the, the inhumane, ungodly stuff that goes on, those groups have a spirit of unity. They have something that ties them together. Now, it's not a very noble cause. It's not something good. But they have the spirit of unity. And so, what I want to bring out with this passage in Nehemiah is that there's a difference between that and being unified by the Spirit of God in our lives. When when you as a church are are going through things or or another church is, I understand y'all are Y'all have been asked to go see if there's something you can do for another congregation. <clears throat> one, one of y'all praying to God for wisdom and, and for direction and just understanding is good. But a lot of y'all unified around that. The Spirit of God, wanting the Spirit of God to have His will in whatever the situation is. Doing all of y'all being unified around that, the unity of the Spirit is powerful. And it fills up more of those vials of prayer that God has. Those things that God, I don't know if those are trophies or what those are, those things that God looks at 
And he sees those things. He's like, you know, those people, they realize they don't have it. They don't know what to do. But they are unified around wanting his will done. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He didn't say the Spirit of unity. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 15, verses 5 through 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what, happened, notice what happens when we are unified around the Spirit. It says that they may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. Not that they look at that community and they're like, wow, those people got it together. But that they realize that it's God and it's His work. It's not, they, they see our failures, they see our weaknesses, but they look at that and they say, you know, they're God's people and God is what's binding them together and God is the reason that they're doing this. Psalm 133, three verses, I'm going to leave in closing. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there is the Lord, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. We need the power of God in our lives all the time. So, you're going to look for that yourself. You're going to look for that with each other. You're going to look for blessings by yourself or you're going to look for blessings as a congregation together. I guess one disclaimer I want to make as well is sometimes we talk about brotherhood and, and, and it's more the thought of as, as a unit. And that's what I focused on primarily tonight. But you know, it also comes down to each one individually. Because every individual having that connection and seeking God is the church and is what makes up the brotherhood. But doing it together, I think, is where we find great blessings. So that God gets the glory and so that when the world looks at us, because they see that love, they see that unity, they say, these are God's people. That's my prayer for you all. Let's kneel for prayer.